Merry Christmas season to you. You always know that uh, the season has arrived when our kids get up there and, and charm us with their incredible talent and more than that, their cuteness. They're so cute. <laughs> I just love it. All right. Hey, uh, I want to give a thanks to Shauna who did such a great job last week. What a gift she is. Yeah, she's just a blessing. We're really blessed to have, have folks like that uh, being able to preach. It gives me a chance to take a little time off. Spent the whole uh, weekend just doing, uh, trying to finish up this book I'm working on, and, and uh, that's my idea of a good time. But uh, it, was, it, it was a lot of fun. I got a lot done. It's not done yet, of course. Hopefully, before the Lord returns. If he returns before I get this book, I'm going to be mad. I mean, it's like, come on. Oh, well, seven years and couldn't wait a little longer. Just kidding. Anyways. Um, so I'm Greg Boyd. I'm a teaching pastor here. And um, we're going to do something different this, this season. We've never done this before. Uh, we're, we haven't really paid much attention to the, the church calendar and the liturgy and all that kind of stuff, but uh, the group that I work with uh, put sermons together. I got a whole team around me. Uh, they thought it'd be good this time uh, to pay attention to the Advent season. Uh, for those of you, all right. Uh, for those of you who come, uh, have come from more traditional backgrounds, you know that the Advent season is the four weeks that lead up to Christmas, and it's a time for Advent means waiting or anticipating, and so we're anticipating the, the, the coming of our Lord, the Advent of our Lord. And, um, and so the, these four weeks have different themes to them in the church calendar. Uh, there's the theme of hope, which we'll be talking about today, and then there's peace, and there's joy, and the final one is love. And so we're going to just talk on those themes each week, but with a view towards the coming of, of Christ. Um, we, of course, know that every day of our life, and the goal is to make every moment of our life, to be one that's focused on the Lord, and to be living in His presence and aware of His presence. But it's still good to uh, take time out, especially dedicated on certain themes, as we're celebrating the uh, coming of Christ into this world. And so the uh, title of this message today is just hope. And the title of each of the messages will just be the theme that we're talking about. Although I want to subtitle this unofficially. As it is hope, the song without lyrics, for reasons that I hope will become clear here in a very short while. Pray with me here for a moment. Father, I just thank you so much for these children that we've just been blessed by, uh, and just to see the freshness of life uh, in them. Um, pray, Lord God, that we all remain, in some respects, as little children before you, with that newness, uh, that freshness of life. You are forever new, forever now, never old though you're ancient, um, but create that new life in us. And Lord, in this message, I pray, Lord, that you would um, well, I infuse it with your hope. I pray that this would come alive to us and, and that your kingdom would come into us. For everyone in this auditorium, for people listening through podcasts, we bless our podrishners, our pod congregation, and others tuning in from other ways. We just pray that you open up all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our, our, our souls to receive your word. And, and uh, uh, God, learn what it is to have hope and to live with hope, a hope that gives us perseverance and strength and peace that passes all understanding. Especially, Lord, for those who maybe are right now struggling with a lack of hope, a despair. I pray, Lord God, you just use this to bring healing and strength into their life. We all open ourselves up to you to do your work in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. I want to start by having us listen to a, a little poem written by Emily Dickinson. Uh, I didn't know this till this week when I did a little research on her, uh, but she was not at all known in her lifetime as being a poet. She was more known for her gardening. She had a great garden, kept great care of it. 
Uh, but she only had a handful of poems published in her lifetime. And even those poems were watered down and, and kind of standardized because her style was so different, uh, very, very, very unusual. And, um, and, and, and uh, uh, it wasn't until after she died that her sister found this box containing uh, 1,800 poems that she'd been writing all over her life. Um, and, and, and they had a, a, a bunch of them published in 1890, um, oh, I guess five years after she died. She died at the age of 55. It was known as this eccentric recluse, uh, increasingly so over her life, started, struggled with depression and melancholy and some other things. Uh, but uh, when those poems were initially published, the editors still watered them down to, to make them standardized and customary. Uh, but even then, they were so outside the norm that the critics kind of candor. Um, just didn't, didn't like, like it at all. But it wasn't until 1955 when they published an unedited version, a three-volume work uh, of, of her poems unedited, uh, that the critics realized that she was a literary poetic genius. And some regard her as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, uh, American poet, and some even would say one of the greatest poets of all time. She was just uh, way ahead of her time. Um, and so the result was she lived a life where... Uh, she felt alien. No one knew her. No one, she wrote these poems to herself, basically. But like all of her poems, this one is, like most of them anyways, this one's very short, and it doesn't have a title. But here's how it goes. It's beautiful. She says, Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Let me read that again. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. I just think that's profound. I think what she's saying here is that there is deep inside of every human being uh, a thing with feathers, a bird. And... Um, it sings. It's a, it's a song of hope. There's a part of us that wants to soar, a hope that yearns to soar above the clouds of the world's frustrations and disappointments and, and, and sadness and sorrow and death. Um, there's inside of every human being a, a, a bird that wants to soar uh, beyond the restrictions and the chains of this world. Part of us that knows that there's something about this world that's fallen and wrong and off. And, and we don't quite fit. She, as a sensitive poet, felt this probably more profoundly than most do. Um, she suffered with a lot of melancholy in her life. Death always struck her as so strange and, and, and sorrowful and tragic. Uh, and yet, she, the, the song kept on going in her heart. I think it even surprised her that the song never stops. It never stops at all. Whatever her life would throw at her. There's, there's, however crushed you may feel in a moment, there's a part of you that still holds out hope. We live by it. I think it's part of being a human being. We, we, we die without some kind of hope. And yet she says it's a, it's a, it, it, it sings a, a tune without the words. And I think what she's expressing there is that the song inside of our heart uh, can't be clearly defined. It's a song, but we don't even know what it's about. It's a tune, we recognize it, but we can't name it, can't label it, can't, can't clearly define it. And so what she's saying, I think, is that the, the, this hope that we have within us, it's, it's for something indescribable, something that goes beyond this world. 
Something beyond the world of what we can touch and taste and feel and experience or even imagine. A hope that wants to soar. That's waiting for a definition, so to speak. This is captured, and I've shared this before, with this German word, Zinsucht, which is this, this indescribable yearning or a longing for something that can't be clearly defined. Uh, I learned about this from C.S. Lewis, uh, who talks about this yearning inside of the human soul for a homeland. It's like we remember something, a place where we belong more than this world, but we can't clearly see it. It's like a, 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 a vague dream, like a vague memory, a distant memory. You can't clearly see it, but you yearn for it, a place, a time, a state of being that, where, where you would finally be at home. Because in this world, if we're honest, we're not really at home. There's something alienating about this world. It's not how it was supposed to be. On some level, we all know that. Whether we can explain it or not, I mean, the Scripture gives us an explanation for it. But whether people believe that or not, there's a sense of being off here in this world. And yet, regardless of what frustrations and pain and sorrow and heartache come our way, that part of us on the inside, it's one of the core parts of being a human being, it keeps on singing. If that dies, I think the person dies. We, we hope. And, and well, we don't hope the person dies, but we, 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 we have to hope. Uh, without, without hope, we die. And see, what I want us to see today is this, that, that that song, that tune without words that's in our heart is there for a reason. It's, it's a God-given part of us, even though it's painful sometimes. Sometimes it's painful to hold on to hope, but, but it, 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 it defines us, and it's there for a reason and our job as kingdom people is to recognize that and to sing it, to sing it loud, but to sing it without words. Because when we try to supply the lyrics to the song, as I'll show here in a moment, we screw things up. We squelch the hope. We misdirect the hope. That song is to be defined by God. It's there for us to sing, but God supplies the lyrics. So for us, it's a, it's a song without lyrics. Waiting for God to define those lyrics. You'll see what I mean here in a second. There's a guy in the Bible who I think really captures this sense of hope. His name is Simeon. We don't read anything, we know anything about him before this event or after this event. But he pops up in one of the infancy narratives. Uh, it's found in Luke, which is appropriate since this is a season where we're, we're celebrating the infancy narratives, the birth of Christ. And so uh, Simeon pops up at a time when Mary and Joseph are going to the temple to dedicate Jesus to the Lord through circumcision as the law required. And here's what Luke says. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required... Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, and now he sort of sings his own song, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. I can die a happy man, he's saying. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Now, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, what's behind that phrase is this. The, the Jewish people had been, for over six centuries, under the, under the oppressive rule of pagans. First it was the Babylonians, and then it was the, the Persians, and then it was the, uh, the Greeks, and now it was the Romans. 
In some respects, the Romans had were the most brutal form of, of, of ruling of all. And they were under this. And this was not only making their life miserable, but it was really an assault on their faith. Because they believed, and the Old Testament would lead them to believe, that um, as the people of God, the chosen people of God, uh, they shouldn't be ruled by pagans. If their God is the greatest God, then they should be ruling those who serve the false gods. But instead, those who serve the false gods are ruling over them. And the, the conclusion they came to was because of their disobedience, that they've been in subjection here. But they were looking for a time where that would be no longer. A time where God would vindicate himself and show that, that they are, in fact, his chosen people. They were looking for a time for a, a coming Messiah, and that word just means anointed one. A Messiah who would deliver them out from Roman oppression and, and would, would, would rally the, the, the people together, would, would solve their problems, and would rise up and lead the people in a violent conquest of their enemies. So that once again, they could reign sovereign and show the world that, that they, they, they serve the one true God. And at the time when Jesus was born, that hope was everywhere. We find it in a lot of different literature. People had a sense and awareness that the time of the Messiah had come. This Messiah King who would be like David and, and lead us in victory over our enemies and reinstate Israel as a sovereign nation. There's, a, there's an awareness that the time had come. So Simeon wasn't alone on this. A lot of people had that. Somehow they just sensed it. Simeon was one of them. But what made Simeon unique was that the Lord had specifically told him that you are not going to die until you see with your eyes the Lord's Messiah, this one that you've been hoping for all your life, the consolation of, of, of Israel. And, and so as he comes into the temple court being led by the Spirit, when he finds the Christ child, the Spirit communicates to him that this is the one he's been waiting for. Uh, this is, if you will, the lyric to the song that you've been singing in your heart, that song of hope. All of his life, he's been hoping, waiting for the coming of, of Christ. And now he, he has the face that matches the hope. Now his song has a lyric, and the lyric is Jesus Christ. And so as he sees this, this Christ child, he then offers up his own expression of a song, uh, declaring the fulfillment of the hope that, was, that he had within him. Now what's interesting is this. Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel, like all the Jews of the time were. But when he then expresses the hope that is in his heart, it goes beyond just the consolation of Israel. He prays, he says, this is the salvation that's not just for Israel, but was prepared in, in to be the light of, for the whole nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Now, what we need to know is that that promise that God was going to reach the whole world, you find that throughout the whole Old Testament. It sprinkles, it comes up here and there all over the place. Um, God always was, has been the God of the whole earth. His chosen people were not just because he liked some people more than others, but they were to be the vehicle by which he reached the whole world. God always works through a mustard seed kind of principle. That's what he's doing with the church right now. Um, but see, what happened was that even though that's there in the Old Testament, because of the more than six centuries that the Jews had been under miserable oppression by these pagans, most Jews of, the, of this time had forgotten that. And so what they were looking for was not the consolation of the world. They just wanted their own consolation. They didn't want a Messiah for the whole world. They wanted their own Messiah. They had come, their hope had come to be narrowly defined in terms of their own self-interest, their own political interests, their own national interests. And so they were looking for a nationalistic uh, political Messiah who would be like King David and rise up Israel and not, not bless your enemies, but rather triumph over your enemies. 
And yet Simeon here, because he's, un, he's, he's aware of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit's talking to him, when he, he starts by wanting the same thing, that consolation of Israel, but when he, when he starts declaring how his hope's been fulfilled in this Christ child, it goes beyond that. He breaks the boundaries of their narrow nationalism and talks about this being a light, salvation to the whole world, consolation for the whole world, revelation to the whole world. In fact, everything about Jesus goes beyond the narrow expectations of most of the Jews of this time. He, just, he, he fulfills all the promises of the Old Testament, but not in the way that most people were expecting him to. So he, he doesn't supply the lyrics to the hope that they were singing. So, for example, when Jesus is born, well, usually when a king is born, you expect the, the, the nobility, the wealthy, the rich people to know about it and to come and pay homage to the king, right? Royalty visit the birth of a new king. But when Jesus is born, who shows up? It's not the royalty, it's not the wealthy, it's not the high and mighty, not the religious leaders. No, it's, it's, it's nobodies. Simeon, who's Simeon? We never read about him before, we never read about him after. He's a nobody. Anna, she comes right after Simeon. Who's she? Well, we don't read about her before, we don't read about her after. She's a nobody. The Magi, <laughs> these, these, these astrologers from the East. I mean, the Bible forbids astrology. These are the people, the last people you'd think would ever show up at the birth of, of the Christ child. And yet somehow, we don't know how, but somehow they got the revelation that, that the king was born and they make the trek across the desert to come and, and, and visit him. And then there's the shepherds out in the field that the angels announced it to. Far from being the high and mighty and wealthy, uh, shepherds were at the, the bottom end of the socioeconomic scale in, in first century Palestine. So it's the poor and the outsiders and the nobodies who end up showing up at this king's birth. And the high and mighty, well, the only one we hear about is Herod, and he tries to kill him. See, this, is, this isn't the kind of lyrics that most people were attaching to their song of hope. And, and then Jesus, you know, the, the kings are supposed to be born into palaces, right? And important families and, and live in luxury. Well, this, 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 this Messiah king, he, he's, he's not even born in a home. He's born in an animal stable, uh, overcrowded, manure-filled animal stable. What kind of king does that? And, and he's, he's not born into an important family. His earthly father is this, this lowly carpenter. And far from living in luxury, well, once he starts his ministry, he's virtually homeless. He has to live off the generosity of others. And far from living in luxury, he ends up getting himself crucified. What kind of a Messiah king is this? this these, these aren't the lyrics that most people were attaching to their song of hope. Not at this time. And uh, they, they, they were expecting a king that would answer the political questions and, and, and rally the nation up against the, the Romans and, and, and have a violent conquest of them. But this Messiah king, uh, he doesn't quite fit that bill either. He doesn't show any interest in their political questions. He, he rails against their nationalism. And then he tells them to, instead of conquering your enemies, you're supposed to love your enemies and to swear off all violence. And then he gets himself crucified at the hands of his enemies out of love for his enemies. What kind of a weird surprising Messiah King is this. This isn't the song that most people were singing at this time. And then the Messiah, finally, he was supposed to befriend the religious leaders because they're the good guys, right? And he was supposed to uphold the law and enforce the law. And he was supposed to uh, uh, bring judgment down on all the sinners. But this Messiah, when he comes, he befriends the sinners, the prostitutes, has parties with them. And he doesn't He's not very rigid with the law. He plays kind of fast and loose with the law and sometimes even replaces parts of the law with his own teaching. What's up with that? And then he brings judgment on the religious leaders. The people who are supposed to be befriending, and that's why they're the ones who end up crucifying him. This isn't the song that most people were singing. And the people who were singing the song, they had a song, they were giving lyrics to their own song, and they were the, the lyrics that were born out of their own pain, lyrics that were nationalistic, lyrics that served their self-interest. That's what they were looking for. 
And because they were defining their own song, they missed the way God wanted to fulfill that song. In fact, they're the ones who end up turning against this Messiah and getting him crucified because he wasn't singing their song. And, and so he posed a threat to their song. And therefore, they had to end that song. See, these, these folks at the time, they thought they knew. They thought they, they expected, they thought they could define what they expected. They knew who God was, right? The religious leaders, they knew who God was. And therefore, they knew what the Messiah was going to look like. They knew whose side the Messiah would be on. They knew what role they were going to play in, 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 in helping the Messiah uh, liberate Israel. They, they thought they had it all down. They defined their own song, and therefore they completely missed the song that God was playing. Simeon finally got it. The answer is found in Jesus. Uh, but the rest of the folks missed it. And what this has got to teach us, folks, is this. As people of God, two things here. As people of God, we've got to always remember that it's not our job to supply the lyrics to the song of hope that's on the inside. Emily Dickinson got it exactly right. From our end, our tune is to be a tune without the words. We're to sing it, but we're not to define it. Uh, we're to let God define it. Emily Dickinson was right that everyone's got this, this hope inside of them that wants to soar above the clouds of discouragement and pain in this world. Everyone lives in a hope of... of how. The question of, of uh, what do I put my hope in when it comes to saving my marriage or when it comes to uh, finding a cure for the disease I have? What do I put my hope in when it comes to raising my kids? Uh, or, or, or maybe the bigger questions, what do I put my hope in when it comes to uh, uh, solving the world's problems? How are we going to end the, the cyclical violence in this world? How are we going to so solve the, the problem of climate change that's going on around us? How are we going to solve the problems of society that we struggle with? And everyone's got to put some lyrics to that. And if you don't know God through Jesus Christ, well, the only thing you have to attach that hope to are the things that you see and the people that you see. What else have you got? And so most people in the world, they've got this hope, and it gets attached to the things they can see and things that they can do and things they can accomplish, things that are under their control or things that they think are under the control of somebody else. It's the tangible stuff that they, they pin their hope to. And so they, they just hope that somehow I'm going to find the job to make the ends meet. Somehow I'm going to uh, find the counselor that's going to help my marriage. Somehow I'm going to read the books that's going to help me raise my kids. Uh, or, or maybe if we just get the right person in office and the right policies in place, that will solve our society's problems. If we get the right, if, 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 our, if our guys, can, the good guys can just get rid of enough of the bad guys, well then we'll end the violence in this world. And, and maybe science will come up with, a, with a, a way to solve the climate problem and other environmental problems that we struggle with. Because they've got nothing else to put their hope on. So they put it on what you can see and what's around them and, and, and put their trust in and what other people can do. But see, as people who follow the unexpected Messiah, we follow a God of the unexpected, we've got to know that our hope is to be put in a different direction. Now, of course, when we're dealing with our, our, our issues, the normal issues of life, our marriage problems and our kid problems and our finance problems, our job problems and the problems of society and the violence and how, do, how we're going to end poverty and all of that, of course, you do all that makes sense to do. This isn't a prescription for being irresponsible. You do whatever can be done. But for, for people who know the true God through Jesus Christ, uh, we, we know that that can't be our ultimate hope. We can't let that define our hope. Those aren't the lyrics that are supposed to, that, that will be su suffice to the song that's in our heart. The song that's in our heart is the song that we sang about earlier. We said it, our song is Jesus. 
It's the song that Simeon sung when he saw the Christ child. See, as, as people who follow the unexpected God and the unexpected Messiah, we can have a very realistic ex- look at the world because our hope is not in the world. And so we can admit that, yeah, get as good a job as you can get, but jobs come and jobs go. And yes, do all you can to raise your kids, but you know, at the end of the day, they've got free will and you can be the best parent in the world and the still can walk away. And we've got to be able to admit that, that uh, um, you know, spouses can leave regardless of what you do. And we've got to admit that there's some problems that we just can't fix. We've got to admit that uh, you can have the best opinions in the world and get the right people in office, but, but when broken people try to fix the broken world, they usually end up just breaking it a little bit further. And at the, the, the thought of getting rid of violence in this world by violently getting rid of the evil people, well, that's never worked in the past, and it's not going to work in the future, because uh, all violent attempts to get rid of evil end up just recruiting more people to act violently. It just goes around and around and around. And so we do all we can do, but at the end of the day, we know that that can't define the hope that's within us. Those aren't the lyrics that match the tune that, that we're singing. Our hope, kingdom people, and it's the only hope the world has got. Our hope is, 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 is in the lyric of Jesus Christ, the one that Simeon recognized as being the consolation of Israel and the consolation of the whole, of the whole world, praise God. Our hope is in the one who died uh, to, to rid the world of the principalities and powers and, and the evil. Uh, the one who has already conquered sin, death, and Satan. Our hope is in the one who has brought the consolation to Israel and the consolation to us and will eventually be in the consolation of the whole world. Our hope is in the one who has already saved us He died to redeem us, who's already cleansed us, who's forgiven us, who's wiped our sins away as far as the east is from the west, who's already seated us in heavenly places with him. And our hope, and it's the only hope that we've got, our ultimate hope is while we do all we can do on a practical level for sure, but we know that the the answer to the hope within us, the song that we're singing, is ultimately in the one who promised us he's coming back again. And when he comes back again, he's going to set up his kingdom that will last forever and ever and ever. The vision of that kingdom, see, Paul says that the sufferings of this present age can't be compared to the glory that God has in store for those who love him. And he says that, that the eyes never seen, the ears never heard, and it's never even entered in the imagination of people what God has in store for those who love him. And, and so our hope is in that coming kingdom when all evil will be, when what Christ did in the cross will be manifested throughout the cosmos. In principle, he's already won it, but now it will be manifested. And, and we'll see then that all evil has been vanquished and there'll be no more sickness and heartache and disease and there'll be no more war and hatred and hostilities and racism and there'll be no more starvation and world hunger but rather all of the issues and problems and struggles and frustrations and disappointments of this world will be replaced by the perfect unwavering love of God that will define every square inch of the cosmos. That is where our hope is. And it's the only hope that really is out there. That matches the song that we're singing. And, and, and so, folks, I think it's so important. In this world of sorrow and trials and struggles and death and heartache, to carve out time regularly to savor that, to, to envision as clearly as you can, to ask the Spirit to help you, envision that coming kingdom. Uh, know that whatever you envision, it will be infinitely better than that. Because Scripture tells us it's beyond our imagination, and yet it will do our heart good to, to get as close to it as we can with the help of the Spirit. See, what I've had to learn in my life, and I'm sure most of us have learned this, is that I can't fix everything. I've always known I couldn't fix a light bulb uh, or anything of the sort. But I somehow got the idea that I could fix people. And I, I, I learned a couple weeks into marriage that that doesn't work. 
a couple years of ministry, a couple weeks of ministry, that it doesn't work anywhere else either. You know, it, but it's hard because you, 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 most of us here not, have had this experience where you have loved ones, people you care about, spouses maybe, or your children, or your grandchildren, or friends, and they come under some kind of affliction. Maybe it's a psychological affliction, a, a psychological disorder, or a physical affliction, or spiritual affliction, and you want so bad to fix it. You wish you had a magic wand and could just go, oh, all done. Your, pain, your heart aches for them, and yet there's nothing you can do. Or you do all you can do, but having done that, it's not nearly enough, and they're still hurting. Or, or maybe even worse is when you see loved ones, your kids, a spouse, a friend, starting to make decisions that go down a destructive path, maybe for the hundredth time. And you thought they had learned, and yet they keep falling back into it. You relapse again and again and again. And, and it could get so old, it could get so, it's so painful to see loved ones go in that direction. And you do all you can do to encourage them and to try to turn them around. But if God doesn't turn them into robots, then we certainly can't try to do that. And when we try to f- turn people into robots and control them, we usually end up pushing them farther in the, in, the, in the area of destruction. And there comes a point in life, doesn't there, where we just have to say, I've done all I can do and I can't do anymore. And then you've got to let it go. You just got to let it go. Um, and your heart breaks, but just know that if your heart breaks because of the love of this person who's going down a, a path of destruction or who's just suffering because of some s- affliction that can't be solved, how much more does God's heart break? Because his love for them is infinitely more than yours. You're sharing the heart of God as you have this ache, seeing people go down this, this situation. And there comes a point where all you can do is, is let that go. And you pray for them, and you encourage them, and you be, there, you be there when they turn around for the hundredth time and want to come back. But um, you can't fix people. You can't fix people. Some aspects of this broken world aren't going to be fixed until the world is no longer broken. Uh, some problems just aren't fixable. And it will only stop being broken when that kingdom comes. And God sets it up in fullness at the end of the age. And so in the meantime, I find that in those situations where you've done all you can do, but now the problem is still there and you can't fix it. In those situations where you face the perpetual brokenness of the world, it, it just does your heart good. In fact, it's necessary to envision the coming kingdom. Sometimes the only good news about a situation is that you know that it's temporary. That's the best you're going to get in this world. You know that there'll come a time where this will no longer be a problem. And that solution in the kingdom will last forever. And so envision that as vividly and concretely as you can. Ask the Spirit to give you an imagination. This is what faith is. Faith is a vision. Have faith in that kingdom, that coming kingdom. And see it. And and, and see, envision a a solution to this problem. And this will no longer be the case. Because Scripture tells us that everything will be harmonized into Christ Jesus' head. Everything will be reconciled in heaven and earth and under the earth. Everything is going to be made well. And so envision that and enter into the peace and joy of that future state and then bring it back into the present. It's like God's credit card system. You know, we've warned in that series we, 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 we just been through about the dangers of credit cards where you borrow from the future to support your, your, your lifestyle in the present. Uh, and they charge you interest and that is not a good, good, good pattern. But see, God's got a credit card system that actually works. He wants us to borrow from the future. Go into the future, envision that, taste it, enter into it, and then take the peace and joy of that present eternal state and bring it back into your troubled state right now. And and you'll find that that, God doesn't charge interest, praise God. He gives it to you for free. 
We just got to take advantage of it. And I find that when I have that, it gives me a peace in the midst of the most anxiety-creating situations. And it can give you a strength in situations that otherwise maybe would just completely deplete you of resources. Knowing that this is temporary, in fact, if you, if you, if you enter into the eternality of that, that final state, every problem that's temporary, every, that's temporal, becomes very, very small. If you're just focused on the problem here, it's huge. But if you can zoom out and grab onto the piece of the future and bring it into your present, you, have a, you not only survive the sorrows and the heartaches and the tragedies of life, you can go through them with a the strength and a faith that gives a peace that passes all understanding and a joy that's unspeakable. And it doesn't mean that the world turns into a nice la-la land, a Disney world. No, it's still painful. But you endure it because that's, that song in your heart, it, it does not stop. It never stops at all. And, and, and but now, now you're allowing God to supply the lyrics to the song. Uh, it, it's still quite indefinable because we're not told how you know, it's all going to pan out. But, but you're, you're letting God supply some, some vision of what, what, what fulfills that song. And that's what's giving you this peace and power to go through the situation. You don't have to know how it's going to turn out okay. There's a hundred questions like, how, how will that work? What if the person doesn't cooperate? Whatever. You don't have to know how it's going to be okay. In fact, you can't know how it's going to be okay. And the people who think they can figure out how it's going to be okay, because they can decode the book of Revelation or something, well, they're wasting their time. Not only because they're misreading the book of Revelation, but because of this. Look at If his first coming blew everyone away and was unexpected, what makes you think the second coming will be any less unexpected? If we learn anything from the first coming, it ought to be that... We can't define it. Uh, he's going to blow our minds when, 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 when he shows us how he's actually going to do it. We can't anticipate it. And, and, and if, we try to, if we try to think we can expect it, well, then we might, like the people in the first century, we might actually miss the way he's actually doing it, just like they missed it. If we learn anything from his first coming, it ought to be this. The right posture to have is one that says, I don't know. I don't know. But to keep your eyes open to the unexpected. Because however it's going to happen, it's going to be surprising. And it's going to be glorious. And it's going to be marvelous. It's enough to say, all I know is this, it's beyond anything we can see, anything we can imagine. However good you think it's going to be, it's going to be infinitely better than that. That's enough. Rest with that. And let God, let God take care of the details. And, and then savor that. And bring that peace and joy into the present. It gives you power to go through the tough times. The second thing is this, however. It, it applies even to the more immediate problems that we have. Um, the disappointments and frustrations that we come, come about because of our jobs and marriages and kids and whatnot. And what we ought to learn from it is this. Knowing that God, his, his modus operandi, to use a fancy word, his mode of operation is unexpected. He's a God of surprises. His first coming clearly demonstrates that. He's a God of the unexpected. And so knowing that, we ought to be a people who expect the unexpected. You know, we, we, we are, let's admit, uh, in our fallen state, we like to run things. We like to control things. We feel secure when we're in charge, when we've got control of a situation, when we can define things. That's why we are so inclined to supply the lyrics to our own song. It feels secure when we are the ones giving it. We like to run our own life. In other words, we like to be Lord of our own life. But what it means to surrender to Jesus is that we stop being Lord of our life. What it means to surrender to Jesus is we surrender to the control of our life. 
We surrender this idea that we can fix all of our problems. We surrender the idea that we're supposed to, to come up with our, all of our own solutions. Yeah, we do everything, all we can do that's in our power to do and makes sense to do. But to follow Jesus means we surrender the controls over to him. And, and, and we put it on his shoulders, as Jesus tells us. Uh, we're we're to, not to worry about tomorrow, but to put all cares on him, trusting that he knows what we have need of. And then we pray. And so in the midst of our marriage problems and kid problems and money problems and the global problems, the societal problems, in the midst of all those, we do all we can do, but in the end, we surrender it all to God and we pray. And as we pray, we have to keep our eyes open for the unexpected because we serve a God of the unexpected and we follow a Messiah of the unexpected. If we think we know how he's going to answer a prayer, you're very likely going to miss the answer to that prayer. Pray, but with your eyes open to, all the, to however God might surprise you. You know, I, Shelly and I, our, our boy was about two years old when we began to notice some strange behaviors with him. And um, we didn't know what to do about it. He, he, as he got older, he just didn't, wasn't developing the way our other kids did or the way any other kids we knew developed. He, was, he had ritualistic behaviors, all sorts of obsessions, strange behaviors, and we wouldn't play with kids his age or kids at all. Um, and all the ways we kept on trying to pull him into the kind of normal, quote-unquote, ways, you know, playing ball and all the things you expected to do, and, and it would always backfire and blow up. And, and the problem intensified as he turned four and five and six. And so we started going to specialists to get a diagnosis. What's going on here? Something odd's happening. And we had four different psychiatrists and four different diagnoses. Uh, and we tried every uh, therapy that they recommended or that we read about, and we tried every strategy, and we tried every medication uh, that, that we could, you know, were told to, to follow. Tried every diet, all these uh, diet solutions that are out there. And, um, and, and, and none of them worked. In fact, more often than not, the attempt to try to implement these just, just aggravated the situation more. And uh, as our boy got older, it just caused us more and more havoc in us and in the family, and and the problem just intensified, and no one had any answers, and no one had any solution, and we couldn't find help anywhere. And after about 10 years of this, we had really come to an end of ourselves, or at least it felt like that. Uh, we feel so alone when there's, the specialist can't give you any help, uh, and, and no one's giving you any direction. And you feel like you're out. Some of you know have been in a situation where you're just out in the middle of the ocean on a little tiny raft, and you got no sail, but it doesn't matter because there's no wind. You're just, you're just there. And there's no land in sight. You're just out there in the sea. Except there's a storm that's raging. <laughs> and, and we didn't know where to go. What, what do you do? What's, what's, what, what, someone give us advice on this. Do we confront the behavior? Do we not? All these decisions, and we had no idea. And then we began to disagree about that. And, and it was just creating a lot of tension everywhere. The only thing that brought me consolation during this time was doing what I just encouraged all of us to do. Where I would, the best news about this situation that I can't fix, no one can fix it, the best news about this situation is that I know it's temporary. And so I would spend time just envisioning the time when the kingdom would come, when, when my boy wouldn't be having this kind of struggles that he's going through. And, uh, and just to see that, to, just to envision that, would give my heart strength and peace as we're going through this terrible situation. And then you just pray. But some of you know this as well, that praying for the same thing after 10 years when you don't see any results gets really hard, doesn't it? But I know that all prayer, there's no wasted prayer, and, and all prayer brings the kingdom into the world, into a situation, 
And so the, the situation is more kingdomized than it would have been had I not prayed. And, and so just taking that on faith, you keep on praying. But it sure would help to see a little results. And then you get mad at God, even though you have a theology that you don't need to, but well, who else are you going to lash out at? So it's like, God, why can't you just, would it hurt so much to heal him? Can you spare a miracle here? Borrow one from turning water into wine and let us have that one, okay? We need it more. Or at least give us some direction. I, I, I send an angel. It would be so frustrating. So a little angel would help. Just some advice. For one day, it's something to go on. Nothing. It's like silence. It's so, it was so painful. But we kept on praying and doing the best we can do. Then one day in church, there's this lady who came up. She'd been visiting the church for three weeks. And she was asking questions about the church. And we're just having a nice dialogue. And my little boy come up and, and he wanted some money to go get a Coke. And so I gave him some money and went and got a Coke. It was about a 20-second interaction, which seemed totally normal to me because I'm used to him. But this lady, observing that 20-second conversation, she said, can I ask you a personal question? And I said, sure, go ahead. may not answer it, but go ahead and ask it. She goes, have you ever had your son tested for autism? And I was like, what? Because I used to work with kids who had autism. When I went to college, four years, I worked with kids with autism. And these were kids who would just spend all day looking at their fingers or twirling a stick or something, you know? Um, and my son wasn't at all like that. You know, he's, he's very normal when you first meet him. And, 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 but she explained to me, it turns out she was a specialist in autism, had a son who is, has autism, and is an advocate. Her life vocation is being an advocate for people with autism. And she could see just in that 20-second uh, conversation that it's at least worth testing for. It never occurred to us. It never occurred to any of the therapists we went to. There was one diagnosis that was kind of close to that, but, but didn't nail like this. So we went to, she got us into the Fraser Institute, which specializes in testing for autism and some other disorders. And it turns out our boy, he, he's, he's very strongly autistic on, in certain areas. But what's unusual about him is that he's completely, he's not at all autistic in other areas. Like he's very socially aware. Whereas most folks who would be as far down on scale on the autistic side as he is, would not have that. Which is why his world's so painful, because he's aware that he's different and it causes him such pain. And, um, but it's also why he could mask it, uh, and why he, he, he uh, uh, had the diagnosis missed so often. He, he knew how to mask it. He knows how to parrot behavior that he doesn't understand. And um, but see, when we, we didn't see this coming, it was totally unexpected, but it changed everything. I mean, just having the diagnosis, it's weird, but, but just having a name for it somehow helps. <laughs> it's like, okay, at least it's in the, it's in the, 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 the world of... It's not like something we're doing, or it's not just, it's a little more manageable just to have a label to it. And, um, and it also gives you permission to let some things go. Constantly trying to pull in this direction, you know, and this just kind of says, you know what, maybe you just got to give up the idea of playing baseball and give up the idea of sports and give up, the, and, and, you let, and there's a pain in that. There's a pain in letting that go. You have all these hopes and dreams, and you just got to let those go. But there's going to be other hopes and dreams that you now are going to entertain because of this. And so it brings a relief there. And it totally transformed the, the way like the schooling was going through. And, and it, it set a different trajectory. And we got you know, some help from the state on, on, on uh, getting some aids in there and uh, teaching assistances. And, um, and it, it just reframed everything. And we got some counseling then for the family to help us you know, work through this. And we didn't see it coming. 
And all that is to say that we serve a God of the unexpected and a Messiah of the unexpected. And knowing that, we pray intensely, but keep your eyes open for the unexpected. It may be that the answer will come in a form that you just never imagined, but that you might miss if you think you know how he's going to answer the prayer. Um, it will narrow your focus. If you, if you provide lyrics to the song in your heart, you'll, you might miss the lyrics that God wants to supply. And the lyrics that God supplies always in one shape or form looks like Jesus Christ. He's always the, the song in our heart, the hope that's there. But you might find the hope will come because of an angel God sent your way like he did for, for Shelley and I, an unexpected angel. Maybe a stranger that you never have met before. You might find, if, you, if your eyes are open, that, that the answer might come through circumstances that are, are, are just completely unanticipated. Just talk to a guy in the last service who had this hope fulfilled by a little note paper that dropped out of a book uh, that he had, had looked at for 13 years, and this thing dropped out at a time when exactly he needed it, and so on and so on. But if you weren't looking for it, you might not notice that. Or it might even come from the person you think is your worst enemy, because we serve a very odd God. He is, as, as Lucy said, he's not a tame lion. He's a good lion, but he's not a tame lion. And we've got to let him run how he wants to run and roar how he wants to roar. Our job is to follow him, not to define him. And, and so you say, God, you be God. You be God. And never stop singing. Never stop singing. So in the circumstances of this alienating, pain-filled, sorrow-filled, disappointing world that we live in, I encourage us to never stop singing the song of heaven. Never stop singing the song of the coming kingdom. You can't define it really clearly, but God's given you enough definition that's going to be beyond what you can imagine for you to imagine the best you can. And drink from that. Let that sustain you. Uh, get a vision of that and, let, and export the peace of the future into the present. Borrow from the future to live better in the present. And then for the immediate problems that we go through, and we all have them, especially the unfixable ones, the ones that you now can't do anything about. Keep on praying. It takes perseverance, I know, but until God releases it from you, persevere. Um, and as you do, keep your eyes open for God to surprise you. Look for the, for the God in the weird stuff. He doesn't usually do it normal, which means we've got to let go of trying to define it. If we supply lyrics to our own song, well, we might be singing the wrong tune and we'll miss what God's singing. No, keep on singing, but do it with your eyes forever fixed on the unexpected Messiah. Praise God. Praise God. All right. I want to close with prayer. As I do, I like to ask the prayer teams to come up here. And if you have any need whatsoever that could use prayer, please come up here and, and just share with these folks. They, they would love to pray with you. And everything you share is completely confidential. Uh, you don't have to worry about that. Um, could we just stand as I just send us out with this? Um, Holy Spirit, as we leave this place, God, help us to do it knowing, remembering that we follow an untamed lion. Uh, you're an unexpected God sending an unexpected Messiah, and so we have to be your unexpected people looking for you in unexpected places. God, keep that fire of hope burning hot within us and to share it with others. But at the same time, keep that hope forever fixed on Jesus Christ and him alone. He is the lyric to the song that we sing in Jesus' name. And all God's singers said, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Go out and hope. Hey, folks. God bless you. Thanks for listening to today's message. I just had one thing I wanted to add. Um, maybe two things. One is that um, after the service, we, I just really had an experience that totally illustrated God showing up in unexpected ways. Uh, I talk with a number of people after the service sometimes, and, and uh, in this case, there's quite a line of people. Uh, but these folks waited around for a very long time, and uh, at the, it was probably a half hour or longer, waiting for others to, just to talk. And they came forward, and there's a young man there 
who uh, this is only his second time in church. Um, and he came because his girlfriend goes to the church here. And, and, and they're both there with the girl's mother. And um, they gave me some feedback on the sermon and what landed and what touched them and whatever. And one of the things that landed was that this young man uh, said that um, he really had a heart for my son because uh, this young man also went to uh, the Fraser Institute where my son got tested. And for seven years, took classes there, uh, just helping people with high-functioning autism uh, kind of function in the world. And he was diagnosed as having that, more specifically Asperger's. Uh, he's the same age as my son. And... Um, well, see, for the last year, maybe longer than that, uh, Shelly and I have been just praying that we'd find somebody who um, shared Nathan's disability, but also shared a love for gaming. Nathan just is a gamer. He loves to play video games. That's all he does all day long. Um, it's his, it's his uh, way of coping with the world. And, um, and, he, and yet he has no friends. If he only has more than one friend in his life, and he doesn't game. Um, and isn't very available because of his, his schedule. And so we were looking for somebody who could just, uh, you know, be with Nathan and, 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 t- and talk about gaming with him and, and help him with some of the struggles of life. And this guy, well, he was, I just met, asked him, I said, are you by any chance into gaming? And he goes, oh, are you kidding me? I mean, that's, I love that all the time. And his girlfriend's saying, yeah, he's just crazy about that. If he's playing the game, I, I, he doesn't pay any attention to me. And, and it was just blowing us away. Um, uh, and so I said, would you be interested in, in uh, uh, and he finishes it, and hang out with your son. I'd love to meet your son. I, I'd love to be his friend. And it was just a God moment. It was just a God moment. And then at, at, uh, at some point, I just said something to the effect of, now if we can only find a cleaner, because we, we have state funding to hire somebody to do uh, cleaning in, and, uh, in Nathan's apartment, and he needs that uh, on a regular basis, the kind of housekeeping. Well, it turns out the girlfriend uh, has been part of a company that does cleaning. That's what she does. And um, boom, there we go. <laughs> we just lost our cleaner two weeks ago, and this was just a, it was a God moment. I didn't expect it, uh, but praise God, we serve a God of the unexpected who comes through in unexpected ways. Take care. God bless you. See you next week. Bye-bye.